0: I'm author and critic David Agronoff. I'm a horror and science fiction author, critic, and researcher. In this podcast, I wanted to provide in-depth interviews and panel discussions with everyone from New York Times bestselling authors to researchers, musicians, and anyone I find interesting. Welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. And welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. We're taking a little break from our Science Fiction Hall of Fame series to welcome an author for an author interview, which is our normal uh, um, state of affairs around here. Uh, I am your host, David Agronoff. I am the author of The Last Night to Kill Nazis. At the end of this interview, I will have some details on my next release and the release party, which will be held in Indiana alongside a solar eclipse. So it's a really fun thing that you can take part in and I will give you those details here at the end. But we're here to talk with Philip Frakazi, who wrote uh, has written many books, but we're here to talk about his most recent release, Boys in the Valley. Um, and I was lucky enough to get to see Philip uh, introduce this book at Mysterious Galaxy here in San Diego. Before his crazy book tour, which we're going to probably talk about. Uh, but I Philip first got on my radar when I read his short story collection, Behold the Void. And in particular, the story Failsafe is one of my favorite horror short stories. I, in fact, believe I gave that story a shout out on the favorite um, uh, horror short stories panel discussion with Mary San Giovanni and Laird Barron and judge Mark Rothenberg. So we will probably talk about failsafe because it's one of my favorite short stories, but here to talk about boys in the Valley, Philip Rikazi, welcome to postcards from a dying world. Hey man. Thank you for, thank you for having me. And uh, if you guys hear screaming in the background, I got Brown's fans living next door and um, we are, I can't returning. imagine they had that
1: much to scream about unless yeah. they're cussing, unless they're angry. Yeah, well,
0: you know, as a Lions fan this year, you do have a lot to as to a Lions a... fan, as with
1: the finally who finally has a good team, I get to now make fun of other bad teams because I've been, uh,
0: I've yeah, been well, fun
1: of for the last 40 years, so now it's my turn to start ripping another team. <laughs> I'm very excited about that.
0: Are you from Michigan? Is that the uh, um, yeah, I'm from yeah, the okay, Detroit area. well. I was, I wanted to get Detroit your Air. reading and writing origin, so that's a great segue. Um, how did you get into reading and writing horror?
1: <laughs> well, you know, it starts with I think what you what you read and uh to your point, so I yeah, no, when I was a kid, um I gravitated toward um toward horror novels. I gravitated toward uh Stephen King and Clive Barker, um Dean Koontz was a huge gateway drug for me, uh, you know, like Shadows and Watchers and all those early Coons titles. Um, you know, when I read The Talisman for the first time, when I read um, The Shining for the first time, those were such memorable moments for me. And I think I actually started when I was very, very young. Um, I actually started, I think I was reading more fantasy, but I, I, I liked the darkness of the fantasy that I was reading. Like I read you know, the Chronicles of Nardia, but I also, and, I, and the Pritian books by Lloyd Alexander, and, and I think it just kind of got, I kind of got into the whole, like, dark sword and sorcery elements of those books versus the more, you know, uh, flowery, um, fairy, or, you know, aspects, you know, I just, I just liked the kind of the idea, so I didn't know Joe, Joe Abercrombie didn't exist then, so, um, yeah, so I think that was sort of like a segue, and then I started reading horror, and and, and I read a lot of horror and sci-fi when I was young, like most like most kids. Um, and so, and then I, um, you know, when I was like in you know elementary school, I was given an assignment to write a short story for the you know as part of me and every other kid in the class, and and I wrote a short story, and I just um, I just fell in love with the the idea of creating stories and creating worlds and creating characters and making these characters do all this crazy fun stuff and have all these and i think one of my very earliest stories was a horror story which was about a roller coaster that um never stopped and i think i was like 12 <clears throat> and uh but they get you know they could never get off the roller coaster and I and they all were getting sick and the people
0: were throwing themselves off it was like this horrible thing it's <laughs> uh, not a bad but, concept for a first story
1: it was my first story, but it was it was an early story. Yeah, no, one of my but yeah, my first horror story for sure. And um I think up until then I was writing like Pastiche of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and detective stuff and things like that. I don't know. But I was like, you know, I was like a kid little kid, so it was whatever. Yeah, yeah and then from- I started writing more horror. I wrote a novella when I was in seventh grade. I tried to write a couple of novels, but couldn't quite I it was frustrating for me when I was younger to try and write novels because I realized even at that age that I didn't have enough knowledge to write the novel as a way right. I wanted to. So I stopped writing. I was very frustrated about that. So as I got older, I kind of kept writing and writing and writing. And then I started doing screen screenplays. And then about 2015, I started writing professional horror again. And that's kind of, it's been kind of a downhill ever since, or downhill in a positive momentum. Well,
0: uphill for your readers. It's kind but... of
1: been in both ways, but it's been, <laughs> but that's why I started writing horror. Yeah.
0: Well, and and did you have for? I know for me uh, it was reading The Raft by Stephen King, where I started to see like, oh, now I know what he's doing. Now I know I I, I see why he put this here and put mm-hmm. that here. Did you have any particular stories or novels that that had that impact on you or
1: not? Not early on. I mean, I, I, I to be honest, no, I didn't really start reading as a writer until I was. Honestly, until I was being published, you know, so I, I, yeah. I always read for pleasure and all that stuff just sort of seeped in. it really was, I think I would say this, I would say the first book that where I had that kind of feeling was probably when I read uh, The Beautiful Thing That Awaits Us All by Laird Barron. I think I first read that around, twenty. I think it was around 2014, which 2014, 2015, by the way, was like a golden moment in like. Horror history, like I think Bird Box came out, uh, The Beautiful Thing That Awaits all came out, Head Full of Ghosts came out. So, that was a kind of an interesting little moment in time. That's but, true, yeah. And, um, that kind of kicked me into that horror- whole field. But, but anyway, I think when I was reading A Beautiful Thing That Awaits all by Laird Baron, I remember reading that book and I remember thinking, how is he making me feel this way? What is he doing? That's ma-? the prose, Laird's prose is so unique and it's such a unique voice. And it's so immersive and it's so dark and it it's very haunting as a reader. (laughs) And I remember thinking, I wonder how he's doing this. And that was probably the first time I had that reader to writer connection where I was trying to figure out, you know, how he was, how he was doing what he was doing as a writer while I was reading it. Yeah. Now I do it all the time. (laughs) I can't stop doing it now.
0: Yeah. Now I find it sometimes like, and I talk about this a lot in my reviews is that I can't shut off writer brain. So right. sometimes like I know certain things that are a problem for me in a novel might not be a problem for just the general reader. Uh, right. For example, I think uh, Ascension by Nicholas Benji, like uh, when I read that, like the fact that it was all supposed to be epistolary, but then it. it Spoiler, I, no
1: spoilers. I haven't read it yet. have it on my TBR.
0: Okay. It me, David. Well, well it's, Sometimes when when writers break the rules of you know, when it when something's epistolary and then it it suddenly is not. Don't get
1: me started on epistolary novels. I hate it. It's like I hate here's the thing I hate the most about epistolary novels. So you can tell me if I'm gonna hate this book. I hate it when it's all like like right, it's like it's like I'm writing this letter from the from the cave, you know.
0: You're not gonna like that book.
1: And then it's like (laughs) and now let me and now I'm gonna write like three pages of word for word dialogue
0: and it's exactly like, it's that like, yeah, no yeah, one would you're ever gonna have write a problem that with that in part.
1: a letter. Yeah. Dude, one or the other, one or the other. If it's a letter, exactly, it's got to sound like a letter.
0: You and I are on the same page and it's yeah. the reason why I grilled that book. Because... Yeah. You can't do
1: that. It's such a bad, it's such a bad thing to do and like, or in journal entries. And it's like, you know, all my whole book is journal entries. So I'm going to now write like all this intricate dialogue that there's like with quotes and everything it's like you would never ever 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 do that right and, right
0: um, well and this is one of the reasons why i think stephen king is the best first person narr- he writer doesn't do because, he's good about it yeah he does not cheat uh dolores claiborne is a perfect example he never cheats um the the technique um and i think you know uh it's why i'm not a big fan of first person for that reason because most people cheat most writers cheat on on yeah. the, the narrative but I'm with you right there. Uh, I wrote
1: one epistolary story called The Baby Farmer. I may have written more than one, but the one I'm remembering right now. And the way I did it, for re- anyone, any writers listening, is I had the I had the the letter or the diary entry. It was Amelia Dyer, who was a, a real-life serial killer, and she killed like 400 babies. And so I had her diary entry, and then I cut to story. And then I... Yeah. Cut, and then I had a diary entry and then I cut the story, meaning I wasn't cheating because I was telling the story, but then I was having the diary entry sort of interspersed throughout the story. So I was filling in the blanks that way versus like having it all be oh, in
0: the There's ways you could fix it. You could you could introduce the letter at the beginning of a chapter or do ellipses and then go into the story.
1: Yeah. There's lots but- of different ways
0: yes there's lots of ways you could do that all right oh, no, well I've hey
1: i was really looking forward to ascension but I mean, i'll still read it i'm sure it's i'm sure it's well i've heard good things about it but that is a bugaboo of mine that's a pet peeve
0: yeah you're gonna have a big bugaboo with that book because i did and we're on the same page of that um and and that's one of the things we like to do with this podcast is get under the hood of books and writing technique and things like that so it's fine uh <laughs> we'll get to voice of the valley and uh in in a minute because i definitely want to get under the hood there and look no writer's perfect you know when 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 they do these things but if you're going to choose to write a first person narrative you got to stick to that you got to be true to it you know and that's one of the reasons why i like i think king one of the things he did in like later the um the recent hard case crime is that i love that i I love love that book too and the first person narrator gets gets smarter as they grow up telling the story and 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 god that was so well done
1: and uh yeah and the the writing was a little bit different yeah um yeah and i've and i've had that happen i've read books like that before where i've been very well you know not to i mean that's kind of one of the things that's like one of the things about the harry potter books is that's kind of interesting to me as a writer is how the writing developed along with the characters ages i thought that was kind of like Hmm first book is a children's book and the last book is basically, you know, adults. So I thought yeah. it was, um, I thought that was kind of interesting, but yeah.
0: And, yeah. and the readers um, were growing up with those books. So yeah. Right.
1: Sense. And the re- Right. So I was right. So readers who were growing up with them were kind of, yeah, that was, a, that was kind of, I know she's not a fan. I know she has her issues, but as far as a pure writing thing, I thought that um, that was a fascinating thing about those books, how they evolved um, as the, as the kid, as the characters evolved.
0: So uh Philip you were a road dog for this book. You did a serious book tour. Yeah. Um and that's no undertaking. There're no little undertaking for an author because uh, you had to do a lot of that yourself, I'm sure. I did all of it myself. All yeah. of it yourself because yeah, uh book tours like that don't are not paid for by publishers.
1: <laughs> no.
0: No. So uh, tell me about your experience and 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 what did you learn by, by hitting the road and meeting readers like that?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I've had a few books out, um, you know, uh, as when, when, when Boys in the Valley came out this past summer and I really wanted Boys to be, to do well. And it was my first big five release. And so I was kind of like, um, you know, and I asked the publisher, I said, will there be any tour with the release and they were like no we don't really do that especially for for first time writers you know i think th- i think the way publishers generally work is they have the top 1 to 2% get all the marketing and promotion dollars and then everybody else is sort of, sort of for themselves um and so i was like okay so i was like oh, how can i do cuz i really wanted to get not just to do the tour but also not just to to meet readers which was a big part of it for sure but i also wanted to meet booksellers i wanted to you know i wanted to um go into the actual bookstores and sign books so that was kind of the impetus so I, what i what i did was I, I did a kickstarter and i won't get into all the details but i basically created some product uh some unique product that i was sold only through the kickstarter um uh, i have a very rabid fan base <clears throat> so that was so uh, they, a lot of them contributed, uh, to the Kickstarter. I raised like, um, $14,000 of, of which I netted like 10 after I had to pay for all the stuff I was publishing and, and the fees and all that stuff. So with that 10 grand, I basically booked a nationwide tour. I think, I don't remember how many stops I did. I think it was like 26 stops from LA all the way to Toronto, which my wife and I drove across the country. I, and, um, and then we went to the UK for, for two weeks. So yeah, that was all, um, I had to do it all myself. I did all the graphics myself. I did all the bookstore events myself, you know, all the coordination, booking authors to come sit with me and talk with me about the book, um, promoting the every stop. It was, it was the hotels, the rental cars, the flights. It was, it was a thing. It was, um, it was quite the endeavor and I, I would never do it again. Um, yeah,
0: but, I imagine that. But that's I'm, glad, like I an I'm like, glad I did, did it. Experience. I'm glad I did it
1: once. Yeah. Yeah. I think I would do. Like, if a book, like if a publisher were to pay me for me to go to like maybe five or six stores, which is kind of the usual modus yeah. operandi with publishers, they usually send their authors to three or four or five or six different, lo- you know, key locations. Um, I would definitely do that. I just don't think I would do the, you know.
0: Nationwide. Two and a half
1: months of straight touring, like I did, because it was uh, by the end, I was, I was, I was on fumes. I was, uh, I think there there were some stretches where I was doing like six events back to back, you know, six days in a row, and um, with driving to different cities in between every night. And by the end, I was pretty gassed. But it was it was cool. It was a lot of fun. I met a lot of great people, and and for me, it was all sort of a lost leader because it really wasn't so much about selling Boys in the Valley. I mean, it was, but it was also a lot about the future books that I have lined up that I'm writing and now having those relationships with bookstores and booksellers and readers. So hopefully it's something that will help develop my overall readership and, and, and interest from, from different bookstores across the country and in the United Kingdom where I spent two two and a half weeks as well.
0: Yeah. And I'm sure that was just an amazing experience going over there as, as, as an author. It was yeah, as, as well um yeah and just the chance to uh build your brand as you know philip frikazi the author now the people that you saw for boys in the valley and or you know are people that are going to from now on every time a philip frikazi book comes out they're going to have that personal attachment to 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 you and and so it's a very smart thing and um yeah yeah
1: i I like meeting i love doing like and the, there's so many other things. I mean, I could talk for an hour about the tour, but it's also like, you know, you get the, those bookstores that promote the event. Therefore they're promoting your book and the people that come are taking pictures and posting it on social media. So there's a lot of positives, but for me, it was really nice to have those one-on-one meetings with readers. Almost, you know, I think almost every stop I would go out for drinks with the with a couple readers afterward. Um, yeah. So it was, that was really, really gratifying. And, it was nice to meet folks who were fans and be able to have one-on-one time with them
0: right and you never know who's going to be the people that are there i um, always tell the story of uh, uh, a lesson that i learned from clive barker uh, which is uh, when uh, abarat 2 came out there was he was doing book events around southern california and i drove up from san diego to orange county to see clive barker do a signing at a store in a mall there and uh, on my way up, I had a friend that drove that drove me and went up with me. He wasn't a reader, but he just wanted a trip to. He just wanted a road trip. And on the way up, I told him I was like, "Yeah, there's probably going to be a line out, you know, throughout the mall, and it's going to be like this crazy thing." And we showed up, and there were four people there. And uh, I had the experience of being like embarrassed and like, "Oh God, this is terrible." There's only four people here. This is going to be so. This is going to be so disheartening for for Clive Barker. And when he showed up, he showed up like 10, 15 minutes late. (laughs) But when he showed up, he was so generous and excited and treated the four of us that were there like we were royalty. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And I learned a big lesson because I, I told myself, well, he doesn't care how many people are here. He cares that we're here. And he's making a big deal about it. And it's, he's Clive freaking Barker, right? Yeah. And I shall also remind people that when a year and a half later, I was hanging out with Clive at the Bram Stoker Awards because they, uh, um, you know, he was there and talking to him and he remembered and he said, oh, we met in Orange County. And if there had been a whole line of people, he probably wouldn't have remembered me.
1: No, I doubt that. <clears throat> I mean, that's yeah. great. Cause yeah, I, I know the, the amount of people that I met, you know, over the three months tour and given how tired I was at most, most of those stops, like, yeah, it, it'd be hard for us to remember a lot yeah. of faces and names, but you do remember, you know, you do remember people. That's the thing that was a little bit stressful. I think that added to the the stress of the tour, you know, we we actually got you know, we, with a couple of exceptions, it was pretty flawless. My wife did all the, scheduling and everything so um and so she was kind of like playing tour manager so that everything went pretty seamlessly but one of the things that was stressful was when you would show up you you know the half hour before you would go to the event and not yeah. knowing what to expect will there be nobody there will there be 40 people there you know and that was kind of that anxiety was not because I was so worried about me to your point um it was more like I didn't want the store to feel like oh this guy's you know not going to make not going to draw off readers we're never going to have him here again or we're never going to sell his books again or whatever so i was kind of like nervous about that um and i would say that um but you know 90 percent of the stores we had a great showing where at least 10 people showed up but we had probably if probably had five or six stores where we had 40 or more and then i probably had five or six stores where there were like three or four people so it was it was um surprisingly the big cities tended to be the least turnout. Yeah. Um New York was kind of a you know, not many people showed up in New York. Uh we talked about San Diego, not a lot of people show up in San Diego. Um, but then when I would do like, you know, I went to like a little a little an in indie store in um uh, well, I went to a bunch like in Kentucky or or, or Arkansas or, or or Tulsa, and I would have, you know, 20, 30 people there. So it was interesting to do that and to see what the different turnout was like.
0: Yeah. That being said, there there, there are, you know, uh, for example, I did a book event in uh, Victoria, Canada that one person showed up to. Uh, and uh, Des has become one of my really, really good friends, the one person yeah. who showed up and uh and become somebody that uh he's become a trusted reader and uh i was the first guest on his on his podcast that now has 800 episodes uh and that wouldn't have happened if i hadn't been there and for sure, uh, for example too yeah we didn't have a great turnout here in san diego which i wasn't going to mention but i i was there and okay. i was very excited to be there however right, right. one thing that did come out of it is that boys of the valley has been consistently in the staff picks at at, um, at uh, Mysterious Galaxy after that yeah. and you know uh, Rob for example is one of the people who pushes your book constantly I, I've been at other events and I've seen it front and center on tables and and that personal connection is one of the things that can't be undervalued
1: yeah no for sure and that's what I meant by meeting booksellers that's what was so great one of the great things about doing the tour was like going to um, going to all these bookstores and and meeting the booksellers face to face and talking to them about the book and, and they would, you know, that, you know, I'd go to, you know, I'd go to these stores where I'd never been before and they would roll in a a cart with 40 copies of the book and I would sign every one of them. And so even if a lot of people didn't show up, I I signed whatever stock they had at almost every single store. And most of the stores had a pretty big, a pretty big stock. So I went to a couple of stores where they didn't have, didn't pre-buy a lot of books and ironically, tragically a lot of people would show up like I once one I think I had two stops where we sold out in like the like and there were people who didn't have didn't have enough books for the people that were there that was kind of a drag um yeah. but yeah. um that but it happens. happens you never know yeah and then I had bookstores where they had 50 copies and six people showed up so it's it's not an exact science but um nope. but it was yeah I don't know that's why I say you just like and I've okay. spoken to other authors since enduring and, during, and I, there's, there's more strategic ways you can do it and you can kind of figure, but, but I was this is me doing it on my own like I said so it was really just like literally just like hitting the road and and uh and hoping for the best
0: yeah I remember the first time I saw your post with your dates and I was like damn he's really going for it and I was pretty I was really impressed that and I thought to myself you know What it showed me. And one of the things is I I know boys had had a a, a smaller and limited release, but one of the things for me was that when I saw how committed you were to touring for it, I was like, I made a mental note. Like that's a book that I'm going to make sure I was like, this author really believes in this book. And that was something too, that I took note of. And uh, you know, it didn't, I hurt that uh you know you were in conversation with uh Cody who I certainly respect and yeah. you know wanted to see that <laughs> one question though before before we get one non-boys in the valley question and then we'll go hard on yeah. boys in the valley um uh failsafe your short story if people can read it online it was on, it was on nightmare magazine so they can find it online um uh, it's funny, like, I that to me was the one where I liked a lot of the stories of Behold the Void. But for whatever reason, that was the story that I was like, okay, this guy knows what he's doing. That that story impacted me. I, I, I'm wondering from your perspective, if, if you hear me saying that, uh, because I've had people say, like, this story or this novel of yours fits for you, and sometimes it's not the one you expect. How does What's your reaction to me saying that Failsafe is the story that just really is that announced Philip Frikazi for me as well, the guy that yeah. I wanted to, to continue to follow?
1: No, I everyone has their, you know, I'm mo- a lot of the thing with me and my writing, which can frustrate people, but also I can't really do anything about it, is what it is, is that all my novels, all my stories are kind of unique. And as my novels are all very and my novels specifically are all very different from each other because I like writing now I like writing different stories but I like writing them in different ways I like using different tone I like having you know I just I just I don't know I like writing the story I want to write and it's not always the same story I know there's a lot of authors who make a lot of money by cranking out the same kind of like it's kind of the same book over and over and over again but like with different trope attached to it or a different twist I'm more of like I want every book to be sort of unique in its own sort of thing so so, so, I do have a lot of people who are like, "I love this book. I didn't really like this book or I like this story. I didn't really like this story. So, uh, so it doesn't bother me. I'm glad that somebody has a favorite anything. but um, but fail is an interesting story to pick because um uh, you know, I wrote that story. So when I sold a collection to Journalstone back in the day, i i I wanted to write a couple I wanted to write a couple original stories for the collection so Falsafe was one of the stories i wrote for the collection and then i tried to sell that story actually let me back up i tried to sell that story and i sent that story to i think it was something like 16 different publishers magazines anthologies and every single one of them you know turned it down rejected it so i was like okay well i'm going to put it in this collection but i, I want like I said, I wanted to have some original stuff in there. So that one had never been published, but I was like, I really believe in this story. So I want it to be in this. I wanted it to be in the collection, even though I'm basically being told by all these people that the story is no good. Um, I really believe in the story. And so I put it in the collection and, um, and then it was nightmare magazine reprinted it. Um, it was in best horror of the year. Volume 10, Alan Datlow, Datlow. Uh, an anthology series and it's been i think reprinted in german and it's in italian so it's like um it's kind of an i said maybe aside from alter probably my most successful story in that sense and then it's also um you know i sold it to optioned it to a, a major film studio and a yeah. major producer um, and a big time writer director so that's you know so it's in i wouldn't say it's in development but they optioned it and they're they wrote a script and they're thinking about it so um hopefully it gets made into a movie so it's it's been a very successful story for me but it was a story that was a lot of people didn't didn't want and um so it's always nice to hear that it's a story that you you enjoyed um, well and, and kind what of I'll, a, what i'll say about it thing. is i want to say one last ahead. thing about that story that story was written in re sometimes a lot of my stories are written in response to things um and when i'm I'll explain that. What I mean by that is, so Fail was written in response to, at the time, this is probably 2016. There's a lot of blowback about ambiguous endings in horror stories, and it was kind of like a thing at that time. It was everyone. we always compl- the horror community, and the horror readers are always complaining about something. And in 2016, they were complaining about too much ambiguity, ambiguity in horror stories. And so I wanted to write a story that was basically a response to. Like it was almost me saying, like, "Oh, I'll show you ambiguity. <laughs> I'll show you right. a story that you where not only do you, do you not hundred percent know how it ends, but the endings are infinite, and that's kind of what the that's what the that's what the uh, impetus for that story was."
0: Well, and one of the things I f- I feel about it is there 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 were probably weirder stories. There may be stories that were better written in the collection, maybe. But what? attracted me to fail safe was that it felt like a traditional horror story and it's funny that you mentioned the ambiguity thing because even though i see what you're saying about trying to go for ambiguity what i i like about it is is that it connected with me in a sense where i felt i very much understood what you were trying to do with the story and sometimes i don't and even if it's am. am ambiguous if I know what you're trying to do I feel like I'm in good hands and so I don't like with writers when things feel like a mess or I don't know where they're going or don't know what they're doing and what I think with failsafe, I was like it felt very tuned to I know what I'm trying to do with this story and I'm gonna pull it off and I'm gonna do it and I and I just felt like the story worked, So that's one of the reasons why it worked for me.
1: Yeah, there are stories, you know, there are, you mentioned earlier about reading for, as a writer with a writer brain. And, so, and to your point, there, so a lot of times I'm reading a book as and my writer brain kicks in and I'm like, this writer doesn't know what they're gonna do next. And so they're like, they're like biding time. They're way, they're, you know, they're they're dog paddling. And it drives me a little bit nuts because I'm a big outliner and I, and I don't mind people who are panthers. As a matter of fact, very successful blah 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 a lot of people are very successful panthers um who don't don't know where the story is going to go next but 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 if you don't know where this don't it doesn't mean just write and write and write and write and write until you figure it out like stop you know know what you're doing so Failsafe safe is a very tight what i would consider a very tight story um some of my stories are not very tight like i i wrote a novel called Saculina, where i really take my time building up the characters and i kind of you know and i really kind of like it's a, more of a pace this pace is much different it's much more of a we're going on a kind of a journey together here Failsafe is very much like a twilight zone episode it's written it's written very in a way that's like there's no fat it's just like and this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens. And the pov of the you know it's told from the perspective of the kid no that's not a spoiler um yeah is something that I was felt very strongly about. I'll tell you this: one thing that you you might interest you is when I first wrote that story. I wrote it because I know you said you don't like first person stories. Yeah. When I first wrote that story, I did write it in third person, and I didn't like. I didn't think it was impactful enough. I didn't think. I didn't think the connection with the character telling the story was strong enough, so I actually rewrote that entire story in first person, and I think that really um, perfected it. I well, think
0: made it yeah, resonated. and I'm not a huge fan of first person. I very, I very rarely write. I almost always write third person. But if it's done well, I'll forget about it. You know, I'll lose myself in the book. And well, I'm
1: very curious to hear what you think about Boys in the Valley now. <laughs>
0: yeah, well,
1: um, with the play on with the play and perspectives that hap- uh, happen in that book.
0: I think, I think I mentioned. I think I talked about that more in the review than I did in my notes for this, but um and i i had i'd have to look back at that but um but i I do think that there uh, the play perspective i i i do think it i did say it took me a while to get used to it as a matter of fact yes i remember now in my review of boys in the valley i said that that was hard for me early and i had to i had to and then i lost myself on it so i i do remember that's because you
1: got your writer brain
0: going wait what is he doing exactly exactly well
1: it's funny from from third to first what is he doing
0: right and um you should know that i had a conversation uh when uh, we were cody and i were tabling at the uh, heavy metal swap meet a while back and i told him that one of the things that i really enjoyed about listening to you talk about writing one of the reasons why i think your writing works for me is every time you talk about doing narrative or nuts and bolts of narrative or research or whatever i always agree with it and <laughs> uh, for the most part and um Like I'm I'm not, that doesn't always happen for me. Uh, And I am an outliner too. Um, I'm, I, I, you know, I think that outlining is one of the ways we don't end up with under the domes. And um, you know, I personally think King, for example is best when he has a cooked in ending like misery or the dead zone. And I'm just being honest about that. The man is a genius. I'm not, I'm not messing with that, but, But as a, as a writer, you know, I just feel like a plan and knowing where you're going is, is important. Now boys in the Valley, before we get into the nuts and bolts of it, let's just sell it for anyone who hasn't read it. If you've made it this far and you don't know about the book, let's just talk generally about the inspiration and what boys in the Valley is about.
1: Do you want me to talk about the inspiration (laughs) and what it's about? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Uh, well, so okay, so it actually ties into what we were just talking about, which was, I think one of the reasons that I am an outliner is because I have a, I have a background in screenwriting. I, you know, I'm a, I've I've produced movies that I've written. I've been produced by Disney and Lifetime, and and so I, I I've written a lot of scripts, and I've, um, that was that was a big part of my life, and I still write scripts, um, on occasion when I'm paid. I don't do it for free anymore. Um. But the point of that is that um, Boys in the Valley was originally a script. And so the story was fully fleshed out when I started writing the novel. So to go back to what the story is about, when I was writing the script, when I was prepping to write the script, I had a meeting coming up um, with a horror producer. uh, um, And I had three or four ideas and I wanted to have like three or four more ideas in my back pocket. Um, for this meeting. And so I was just researching ideas and I came across this story about uh, an orphanage in Pennsylvania at the turn of the 20th century, where like half of the kids in the orphanage had mysteriously disappeared. And there was never any really, any explanation as to what exactly happened to them. The orphanage was shut down. The The remaining kids were sent to factories or other orphanages or whatever they did back in 1900, and I thought that was really interesting, and I wanted to kind of tell the story of what I thought happened to that orphanage, um, in, you know, in 1905, or whatever, so that was the idea, uh, for what, that spurred the idea for the book, um, and what the book is about is this, this boy's orphanage run by a Catholic priest in rural Pennsylvania, they're far away from, you know, they're hours away from any other city or major town so they're kind of self-contained um there's 30 boys and then one night uh late night there's a knock on the door and these it's the sheriff from the town two and a half hours horse course right away with a couple deputies and his prisoner and they the prisoner is dying and they want the pre, one of the priests who was a civil war surgeon to try and save his life And from that point on, uh, there's like an evil released in the orphanage. Some of the kids become infested with this evil. Some of the kids do not. And it turns into basically a sort of, and then when then a storm hits, really sealing them all in. And it basically turns into sort of a hot box of horror, Lord of Flies style. Um, And I think the, the tagline of the book is Lord of Flies meets the Exorcist. And that's kind of, that's a pretty good summation of what, what it's about.
0: Right. And uh, I did not know that you wrote it as a screenplay at first. That makes sense. It um it would make a, a, a an excellent movie. It has since been uh,
1: written as a screenplay for, by another by another writer director. it's been optioned for a film,
0: so we'll see no. if that
1: pans out. But it's kind of ironic that it went from screenplay to book to screenplay, but yeah.
0: Yeah. That, um <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh I ironic might not be
1: the right word I don't know.
0: Yeah. I've used the same method. Uh, a couple of my books started as screenplays first. Um, and uh, I think uh, that, that that can be a, a really good part of the process. So, um, so for people, if, if you've made it this far, I want us to feel free that we can do spoilers at this point. Like, um, that's my listen, if that doesn't sell you on the book, it should totally sell you on the book. Let me just tell you that this is a really good year for me reading and it made my top ten reads of the year spoiler for my uh my podcast uh my yearly podcast of top ten reads um so it's it's in the I'm, i don't remember where it is, is the position of the top ten but this was a very strong I'm year glad to
1: be I'm just glad to be at the party man <laughs>
0: yeah um this year I do there, there were two science fiction novels that absolutely walloped me this year, and that uh, I will give away. That one of those was uh, Mr. Carey, uh, Mike Carey, who was recently on the show. So I gave away that that's either going to be one or two. Um, what was the, the
1: name of? The, I had that. I had that book.
0: He just the Infinity Gate by uh, Mr. What, it, what Carey. is it? I talked over you. What is it? Infinity Gate. In, by, Infinity
1: Gate. Yes. 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 Yeah, and he just, it's going to be a trilogy. He just, I know the second one's been enough. Nope. Just two, uh, just two. Oh, really? Oh, okay. That's, oh, cool. Well, that's good. Yeah. yeah, I know Orbit, who published that, is publishing my science fiction novel um, in January of 2025 called The Third Rule of Time Travel. So,
0: um, Yeah, and that was the last interview before you was Mike Carey and talking about that book. And uh, that book just knocked my socks off. And, yeah, I can't wait uh, to
1: read it. I'm it a big is...
0: fan. It is, yeah, yeah, and uh, I just recently also he sent me a copy of the new Felix Caster uh, novella, uh, Ghost and Bone, which is very good too. Uh, yeah, he's an interesting guy that he does
1: horror and science fiction, and I I think I would like to do more science fiction as well. Um, I enjoyed writing the one that I wrote and everything. I'm, I'm so that...
0: very excited for you to write science fiction, Philip. Um, yeah. I, and I'm very I, I've heard about this book because he talked about it, in Mysterious Galaxy. Um do you want to give people a little preview on that before we dive into the spoilers on Boys in the Valley?
1: Yeah, well it's a, it's a, it's a time travel thriller and it's it's um I think you know it, I don't want to say it's it's layman's hard science, we'll call it that, which is yeah. but the but the time travel is unique. I don't think it's ever been done before and it is actually based in real this is it's a a story it's based in real theoretical science but what that means is it's based in actual real science that is still not proven so um but yeah so it's 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 a time travel thriller it's very heart-wrenching um but it's a lot of fun and the folks who have read it have really really enjoyed it and uh Orbit loved it so they were very excited to pick it up and um it comes out in January of 2025 so that'll be so the third rule of time travel so that's the that's the my first science fiction first science fiction book and this before that one comes out i have a story collection called no one is safe coming out in april and then i have a horror novel that i just announced called Serafina that's coming out in august from earthling and then the time travel novel january 25
0: all right all right so now uh you've got a spoiler warning we're going to get into details of the story of boys in the valley from here on out and I did notice that in my notes I did have a question about the switching from first to third um, Just
1: and- let's, let's just the only thing I ask is I don't mind spoilers but let's not let's not spoil the ending we're not spoil the ending
0: okay okay j- just in uh, j- case <laughs>
1: someone's yeah. like well I want to hear but I still want to reread the-. is that okay with you yeah Will that's fine with the- me
0: I, I won't everything else the- is up for grabs I won't give away the uh, the very ending it's um, the yeah. last chapter you know it's funny because when uh john shirley came on recently to talk about suborbital seven and i told him spoiler warning and all that and he was the same he was like i'm not talking about the last <laughs> the last act of the book no matter what and uh uh and uh i i i get that i understand that so yeah i want
1: people to have that experience that's <clears> everything <throat> else we can t- we can go for it
0: <clears throat> okay we're mostly going to be talking about the the writing process so okay Okay, so switching from first to third, what was the now? I I I know I said in my review that 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 when I was first reading it, writer brain like kind of rejected and was like, "Wait, we were first, we were third here. What are we? What are we doing?" And then I completely forgot about it once I got engrossed in the story, and that's the way it should be, right? But I also think that non your average reader isn't even going to notice that. That's a writer reading that, right? So what was the thinking behind doing this? This was obviously intentional. You made this decision intentionally. So what was the thinking?
1: Yeah, very intentional. Um, so the thinking was so the, the story is told from five different perspectives. And um and four of those are limited POVs told in you know written in a third person. Um and what I really wanted was the the only two parts of the book that are not told from these five perspectives is the first chapter and the last chapter. But um, what I really wanted was for Peter's POV, Peter is the hero of the story, not the hero of the story. He's the kind of like, he's the um, traditional hero character in the story. You could make an argument that there are other heroes, David um, or even brother Johnson to a degree. But um, But I really wanted Peter's POV to be first person and i had and i had multiple reasons for that the biggest reason for that though was I wanted the reader to really um connect with his voice i didn't i didn't i know that he is you know his character is a little bit um you know he's not the most complicated character he's not the most um conflicted i mean he is pretty conflicted but he's not the he's not um he's a character that has some flaws. As most of my characters do, if not all of them, but I really wanted the reader to feel like when they read Peter's chapters that they were kind of like settling into um, um, his world and, and and kind of seeing things from behind his eyes. Whereas when I whereas where with the other chapters, you're kind of seeing it on a movie screen or you know from a from a from a a step to step away perspective. So I really wanted you to be in, more immersed with Peter so that. You know, he was the one who was sort of like guiding you through the story. And whether you like it or not, or whether you know it or not, by the time you get into that story, into the story, by the time you're 50 or 60 pages into the book, you are kind of Peter and as a reader, and you're going through everything that he's going through. And I think that it makes the book much more emotional. And I think it makes it much more, um, you know, much more empathy for what he's dealing with. And I think ultimately it makes it a more satisfying reading experience. And, and, and I think hits in a different way than maybe it would if it was just all told to you, like, a, like, it, as if it was a movie, I think, I think a lot of readers get really tied in um, emotionally to the book. So by the time the whole thing's over, they're, hopefully they're, you know, they're, um, it's something that they're feeling and will hopefully resonate with them for a for longer time.
0: Well, that's interesting, too, because you think about all the time, like, uh, well, you know, um, rules are meant to be broken, right? Uh, I I think about um, uh, Holly, the most recent Stephen King book. He does a lot of telling in that book. And, you know, the first rule you're told all the time is show, don't tell. And there's actually parts of Holly where he's actually telling what's happening outside of the characters around them and i think he's just playing with new things right yeah. you know like to, to tell a story and i didn't necessarily like all those things that he was doing and i they made me uncomfortable with writer brain but i appreciated that he was doing it and what i like that you're doing here is that there's you're you're just trying to hook people emotionally into the characters right. and what you're doing effectively is is um, tying us into the emotions of the characters. So then by, well, you're right. By 50, 60 pages, I forgot about it completely. I wasn't paying attention anymore. I wasn't thinking like, oh, this is a first person chapter or this is a third person. I wasn't thinking about that. I was just thinking about what was going on. Right. Because I think the movie in my head was starting to play and the story was.
1: But also the thing with, but when you read those Peter chapters, it was much more his voice. Right versus all the other chapters, which were my voice, really. But um, but yeah. So I think it just kind of yeah. I don't know. It's just. Do you see it as that that you were uh,
0: kind of blending it in and trying to blur the lines between where those narratives started and finished? Because it's hard for me to say. Because like I said, I lost track of it.
1: Yeah, I didn't. Which is the point. I'm not a big fan of. I'm not a big fan of like retelling the same information from from a different perspective i like to keep things moving you know chronologically forward so yeah so i i tried to when i would switch from different povs the hope at least i I don't think i did this but the hope was that i was always kind of like building on what had just happened even though now we're seeing it from a different perspective
0: right and and the the characters in this story whether you're talking about um father uh pool and um you know, and, and some of the different uh, priests and the, the kids in the orphanage, they all come from very different perspectives. So when you're switching POV, a lot of times, like how they're viewing the events become, you know, part of how you tell tell the narrative. And the way it shifts back and forth is very well done in this book, as far as, um, you know, uh, that goes. So now, before we get into like the, the differences in the, how the characters see those things, Tell me about the historical research and how it affected the narrative. Because, you know, I'm I'm a research nerd too. I just wrote a historical horror novel or just released one recently, so I know what it means to like research the history and have it inform a story. So, how? What are some key ways that doing the research informed the narrative?
1: Well, I'm I'm actually more of a, you know for me when i do a period piece and i also just i also just wrote a historical horror novel the one that's coming out from earthling it's called seraphina it, the whole the whole novel takes place during the civil american civil war and it was exhausting to write it because there was so much information that i needed to learn and study and research um to get the story right i mean but the story definitely comes first so for me it's the story is this and what information do I need to insert into the story so that it's believable and, um, with but without necessarily like doing history lesson or whatever or over explaining things that are happening during that period of time because I researched it. So therefore, it's in the book. I'm much more about, um, what do I, to your point, what do I need to put into this story to, you know, from his, from a history, historical perspective to, to inform the story and also to make the story richer, but without overdoing it. And so I think for Boys in the Valley, it was actually pretty limited because, because the whole book is set in basically one building um, in the in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I didn't really have to get too expansive on my research. I was basically focused on how would these kids be talking? What would, the, what would their dialogue be like realistically? What were the conditions like? Um in this kind of situation but everything all the research i did was focused on this very isolated thing i didn't have to do a lot of f- wide-ranging flora and fauna of you know eastern pennsylvania in 1905 it was really focused on um on the boys what would they be wearing like very specific specific things um, how do they go, go to the restroom how do they wash their hands hey um, you know, the corn cob
0: thing is something cob. that I will take with me for the rest of all time, right? And I learned from Boys in the Valley. Either I'm not sure if it was the book or you talking about, the- I
1: think I brought it up at that mysterious galaxy. <laughs> that corn cob. Yeah. The corn
0: cob thing, like that for wiping the butt, I, it, I've now taught that to other people as well,
1: yeah. Even I was like, Yeah, because I was like, How did they do it? And so that way, there you go. And um, so the, yeah, whereas like in Serafina, for example, I did, it was, it was so much. More research because these three brothers are at the Civil War, and then they're like walking across the country, basically trying to get home. So I'm de- and it's, so there's politics and there's and there's um, when I say politics, I mean government, what the government was like, and what police were like, and or what law was like, and what there were no police, but you know what I'm saying, and what um what the what the war was like, and and what the Mississippi River was was like, and what the trees were like, and it was just like. It was it was a lot. Whereas, like I said, boys was much more isolated from a research perspective, so I didn't really have to do a, a ton of, of of research. It was more kind of um, it was more kind of as needed. Whereas when I wrote my novella Shiloh, also a Civil War story, or when I wrote Seraphina, I had to really spend a lot of time researching before I even started the story.
0: I tried a new trick with last night to kill Nazis, where when I was outlining the book, I made a list with each chapter of things that I thought I'm going to have to look up like for example like I knew there was a scene where they you know they went through Munich and there's a US army checkpoint and I was like all right so I need to know US army slang for the time and yeah. for example because he's they're going to ask the soldiers for food and I knew in my head well they called it shit on a shingle like usually like there but if I know that, then I, I there, there's going to be all kinds of other slang, so I got to learn that. And then I would just make a list with each chapter. And then a lot of times, um, I would double check that list before I started writing for that day and say, "Do I need to review this?" Because I done all the research beforehand. But then a lot of times, I would, you know, keep whatever materials I was doing for that chapter, and I would say, "All right, I got to review slang today," or "I've got to review." you know, this chapter is about Hitler's speech secretary. So now I got to read a bunch of his speeches and that's going to be really heavy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did that to hear, but it seems like what you're saying with for boys is that because of the one location, it made it a little bit easier to do, to do the research.
1: Yeah. It was very isolated. It was a very isolated story. Um Yeah. It's when you start getting, exp- like you're talking about, that's a lot of expansive universe that you have to know a lot of information which about.
0: you had to do more for shiloh right
1: yeah and it's also surprised that it's also you said you pre-plan what you have to research by like i you know and I, use, I don't know if you use scrivener for outlining i use scrivener uh-huh. outlining but so i put a lot of that stuff in there as well photos and that kind of thing and um and but you know it's also surprising how much stuff comes up when you're writing um, yeah that you can't that you don't think about ahead of time you know, because like something will happen in a scene and you'll be like wait a minute what kind of gun would he be using or how's he loading it or where would they store their ammo or what like I, I think in Shiloh there was a scene where they, the guy had been shot so they ripped his shirt off and I was like what would they be wearing under their uniform what what, what was the underwear of that time and it's little things like that and so and what were they and, and to your point slang. Uh, you know, you want to kind of use sparingly, but, but when, when it's appropriate and, um, yeah, so it's, it's historical stuff is, 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 um, is a lot of research and you want to get it right as much as you can, because if you don't get it right, you'll hear about it. And, um, so I try to, I try Possibly from Cody.
0: Huh? Possibly from Cody, you'll hear about it.
1: Yeah. Well, the other thing I was going to say is the other thing that's kind of is, um, difficult about writing historical fiction is you're not just it's not just what they're saying or what they're doing it's not just what the the characters or the action it's also your prose like you can't say you know um you know whatever like you know it hit it hit them like a jolt of electricity if your story takes place in before electricity or and i made a mistake in boys i'm not going to tell anybody what it is <laughs> that I had to have fixed in the paperback edition. After I went through like six proofreaders, and after I'd read it 400 times, there's still one one thing slipped through. Not in not in anything that happens in the story. Um, it, it's it's something that I wrote as prose, so, like yeah. so things like that. Little things like um, like in Serafina, for example. Um, you know, they talk about um you know they didn't know about um blood poisoning from a bullet wound or from or infection you know so so like just the way they so like i don't know just you have to be very careful as to how you describe things what metaphors you use and and all that kind of stuff because again it's all everything has got to be that time period not just not just what's happening you know um visually or with the characters and setting and scene also with the way you're describing things metaphors you use all that kind of stuff you have to be very very careful about what you say
0: yeah one of my biggest pet peeves in science fiction is when somebody says in the world when they when they're like in star trek and they say you know he's my favorite person in the world and it's no. like the world doesn't mean shit to these people it's no, only no. one world uh, hold on one second i'm getting blinded by sunlight um uh so the religious horror aspect of this and the possession part of the story um you know how how is it getting into that aspect of it i don't know i have no idea if you're a religious person or not or what or what possession stories i know like for example sadie hartman uh mother horror she's talked about how this book freaked the hell out of her because possession stories mean a lot to her i personally am not a super religious person so it's funny because um like end of the world stories and intense isolation are like personal things for me that really hit home. And what was interesting for me is, is is boys in the Valley worked for me, even though like possession stories aren't particularly my favorite horror genre, but um, what worked for me was the isolation of the orphanage, right? That's what worked for me really intensely. And the idea that, boys worked for me on a lot of levels because i kind of imagined like what it would be like if you know this these people thought this was happening to these boys and there there's that interpretation of it too right so yeah. how did you feel approaching the religious and possession parts of it
1: so i mean yeah you, if you're going to write a novel about possession you're going to have religion so and it's been I have to be very careful what I say, it's been surprised. I say, I'll say this I've right, been... <sighs> it's been interesting to me the response to the religion element of the book because it is a story about demonic possession, it does take place in a Catholic orphanage. There's gonna be some religion in there. Um, I mean, uh, so. But my approach was twofold to answer your question. I want to answer two, two things that you brought up. The first thing is my approach was always, look, everything I do is to serve the story. Everything I write, whether it's religious or whether it's historical or whether it's the way the prose moves or the pacing, everything serves the story. Every single thing is for the story. So the story needed um, to have some religion in it to make it work because of the, the the setting and because of the, the fact that it is a possession story. And um, so my approach to the religious part was, um, how can I use this as a tool to make the story better? And, and um, so I, I, it's, you know, it's just something that I use as a, it's just, it's just a plot device.
0: Which it's leads, not- which leads to one of my favorite parts of the book. Yeah. And I will also quote, um, Peter Straub had that saying where he said, "I I don't believe in ghosts, but my imagination does," which I that was great. Right. right. <clears throat> but this leads to the father pool refusing to give last rights scene. Right. To me, this is one of the most powerful parts of the book. This really creeped me out, not yeah. because like I care. I'm not a person that's like, oh, this person has to have last rights. So they that this. Has to happen or their soul will go to hell it's because of the intolerance that he shows in that in that right. moment and it's just a powerful scene you want to t- tell me about that scene and well, right- yeah
1: and that's part of it too is like um so yeah that scene in particular is one of the kids dies this is not a spoiler folks <laughs> uh trust me when i tell you that um and father Poole, who runs the orphanage with an iron hand as it were an iron fist he um he tells the other kid that they that this that uh that he won't the child who died won't be buried in sacred ground because um because well, we're doing spoilers because um his 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 take on it is that it was a suicide and therefore a sin um and it's and it's tragic because the the innocent child who died obviously you know it wasn't a suicide and um, and the fact that he would basically be you know um, not given this right that he personally believed in and that a lot of the kids personally believed in was very much a it was just kind of a it was a it was a very savage mean like it was, it was an element of cruelty that he hadn't shown really to that point, and you can tell by that point in the story that Father Poole is on spot. You know, he was spiraling a little bit. Like Father Poole's an interesting character because he's straight. He starts strict from the beginning, from the get go, and he has some very strict disciplinary things that he does. But you can, but by the end of the book, he's kind of, you know, he kind he his his arc is that he kind of gets madness sort of creeps into his his world because because of what's happening so um so that was that scene and but you made the point about um um you you know there's there's a lot of um is it really demon possession is a question that you have a look you could legitimately ask after reading this book is it really the power of god that helps the kids you know is that really the power of god in this book and i feel like and it's interesting to me because there are readers who are passionately angry about the idea of it being sort of evil versus uh like you know versus god or 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 holy you know religion blah 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 And religion sort of, you know, winning, which by the way, that's not a spoiler because I'm not saying who, I don't know you can even say that, but right. And not really, not really taking the time to read sort of the, a lot of the, the subcontext or the, you know, that I, that I put into the book, whereas it's really about, you know, Peter, it's his belief in himself that empowers him to do the things that he does to, to help the kids. And, people are just so ready to be angry about religion that they don't even bother to really read, read the book carefully enough to realize that that's what the book that's, that's what it's about. So to answer your question about religion. So the long winded way to answer it is I do, there's definitely religious plot elements in the book. I don't see it as a good versus evil book. I don't see it as a demonic possession versus the power of Jesus book. I see it very much as, um, the manifestation of evil could be coming could be coming from demons. It could be coming from some other kind of source of evil we don't can't put a, you know can't define. It could be coming from the conditions that the children were forced to live in. It could be coming from the priests who who you know tortured and and abused these kids and and. And it could be coming the fact that they were had lived lives where they were on the cusp of starvation every day and had to work to to, to eat, you know, work in the fields to, to even have put food on their table and, and had these horrible disciplinary conditions. And that could be the evil. And I, you know, and I think in a lot of ways, and then I think that what the conflict is more about, more about um, the difficulty of their lives. Being manifested into violence versus the difficulty of other kids' lives, the other half, if you will, being manifested into goodness, and I think that's that's what that's what the clash is, you know. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons David's character is very interesting because David really struggles with what to do every step of the way because he's very much hates it. He very much hates this orphanage. He hates these priests. He, it's his hell. He says it. It's you know, it's actually a line in the book. This is that was my hell, and, um, but he still does the right thing over and over and over again because he believes inherently in goodness and 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 in you know, um, helping those who need help. So it's very complicated, and I and I don't like when it's overly simplified as a good versus evil thing. Right. Um, well, but that's that was the idea when I wrote it.
0: Well, and um. I'm going to explain why I think uh, Boys in the Valley is as is, is elevated horror in the, you know, and even though I kind of laugh and chuckle at that concept of elevated versus what not elevated horror, like we think of the horror genre is always has the potential to to do these wonderful things. To me, now, here's the thing that the people who listen to my podcast, whether it's this one or my Philip K. Dick one, know that i say all the time to me the fundamentals of storytelling are parallels and reversals i love when stories use parallels and reversals all the time and the parallels in boys in the valley are so great between the corruption of the boys via you know you could and you just lay this out beautifully <laughs> whether it's the corruption of the boys from the priests the natural environment or what's going on these three parallel tracks are what makes the third act of this book just feel so tight because um the corruption is on many levels and we know that for something to be truly for the boys to to be kind of confronted or put in this evil situation it comes from all these things. And it's one of the reasons why the book is so strong because um you you have all these um, horrifying moments and, and and for me, like I said, the reason why that scene where they're refusing to give the last rights, it's it's to me it's the moment where you know you're in the hands of this religious intolerance and you're trapped there. And these boys are trapped there. And while things get worse and worse, I, you, it's like it's the train wreck coming. That's one of those things. Also, I will have to say now, if you don't want me to go there, I think there is one particular description you have of the experience of... Demonic possession that I think was a really incredible prose. And I highlighted it in my review. Uh, one moment, his head bursting with the swarm, an infinite number of angry flies battering inside his skull, countless black legs pressing against the back of his eyes, crawling through the deepest reaches of his ear canals, climbing up the back of his throat, so loud, so dead, so heavy, he could do nothing, think nothing. But for the instructions, the command to kill is simple, direct. He wants nothing more to comply. Sir? That is excellent.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that was me describing how it feels to be possessed.
0: Great, because here's the thing. As somebody who said that demonic possession didn't really freak me out, that freaked me out. That idea that you it it made me it invoked my favorite horror novel of all time in a strange way which sure is my, my favorite horror novel of all time is wet bones by John Shirley. And oh, that book Wet Bones? Wet Bones by John Shirley.
1: Wet Bones, okay.
0: Yeah. And that book is about addiction. And John uh. wrote it when he was trying to kick heroin addiction. Uh. And he's been very vocal and open about it. And one of the things that that book does is explains how hard it is when addiction is controlling you and making and, and making you feel powerless to this monster that's inside you. And this moment reminded me of <laughs> wet bones It reminded me of my favorite horror novel. So that is no little feat. Yeah. Um, what I'm saying is that um, I felt the same way when I read wet bones, where I felt John's, inability to control addiction this moment why i think it's such a great moment is that it made the terror of demonic possession feel very real to me because it felt like no matter what this kid did the control was gone and you made it palatable so hats off
1: yeah, thanks yeah and for and, and just so it doesn't seem like i'm contradicting myself you know could you could you make the yeah, could you make the argument that demon possession is very much what's happening here? Yes. Could you make the argument that there is no demon possession? Yes. There's not a lot of supernatural yes. stuff in this book. As a matter of fact, the first when I first wrote the screenplay, there was a it was a lot more like straight down the middle, demon possession, supernatural stuff happening, and I was showing it to a director friend and he said you know this would really be more scary if you didn't really know for sure if they were possessed or not and that comment really really stuck with me and i actually when i wrote the book i completely wrote it under that umbrella of like i really want it to be about these characters their conditions their lives the hardships of their lives, and even the scene you're describing which i think is brother johnson character Um, if I remember correctly, is, you know, I go back into his life and how he got to where he is now and the reasons he's so conflicted. And so anyone who knows anything about anxiety or depression or um, madness, um, and I wrote another book about those exact things called Don't Let Them Get You Down, knows that what feels like a, like that we just described to your point, John Shirley said something similar in regards to heroin addiction i would say it's also very similar to someone who's going mad it's a ma- it's a madness that is corrupting yep. their their mind and um and does isn't necessarily rooted in uh supernatural things it could just be it could just be the fact that you're a human being and human beings have a tendency to go mad in extreme situations so um yeah, so I I hope, I hope like to think that the book is a lot of different levels. You could read it very much on its surface as a good versus evil book, you, or you could take you could really, if you felt like reading, taking a deeper dive in it, there was a lot of nuance to that book. And I do that a lot with my work and I don't mean to pimp myself or put myself on any sort of pedestal, but it is important to me a lot of times to read that books can be read or stories can be read very much as a surface level narrative. Or if you want to go a little deeper, I, there are, there are things in there that I put, like, um, I wrote a book, I wrote a story called, um, Serafina, which is the last story in Behold the Void. And you could read that story very much on the surface of what it is. And you could read how that story ends as very much of a, on the, as, as a straight thriller. And this is how the, how the thriller ends, or you could go a little bit deeper and maybe reread the last 20 pages and it might give you a different perspective on what happens. So I like to do that in all, not all, in a lot of my work, boys is one of those books where i really tried very very hard and actually I had an early reader a very very well-known author i say but um because i want to whatever but uh, it's not my place but who said when they first read this book and it's very very early form um that they're like you you, know, you want you want to be careful about um you know, you want to really. I would emphasize because he kind of knew what I was going for. He's like, I would emphasize more some of that am, ambiguity as to where this, where the power is coming from on both ends of the spectrum, the good and the bad. And that was a really great comment too because I was like, okay, I thought it was obvious, <laughs> but it's obviously, but it's obviously not. So I really went back and added a lot more um, introspection as, as to, especially with Peter, um, as to as to what was happening with him and why he was able to do what he did to save the kids that he saved
0: awesome against
1: a very dark force
0: right well and 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 listen um you know the book leads to discussion and that that's that's not mark of a good book uh cody and i had a um nice talk about uh boys in the valley uh well slinging books at the heavy metal swap meet so uh, you know we we uh uh because i had read it more closely to when we were hanging out uh, and i think uh, that's one of the things that's a sign of a really great horror novel um and one that you can think about talk about and dissect and get into um uh, Philip, I think "Boys in the Valley" is is uh, one of the best books I read this year. It's uh, a really powerful piece, uh, and uh, I think it will. It's one that will worm in people's brains for a while, and um, it's some of those those moments of really fine tuned writing that just uh, uh, really bring it up. And you're right. Now, I did uh, explain that. I did say it in the context of demonic possession, but you're right. It could be madness as well. And uh that is that is definitely one of one of the things and um about it. So on that note, um, uh Boys of the Valley is uh coming out in paperback soon, right? Uh okay. July. July. Okay. A,
1: a year the book came out July 11th of twenty three, so the paperback will come out July. 24 we're, we're hoping to do i'm hoping to do um an alternate cover for the paperback um so we're in discussions with the publisher about that um yeah but that's when the paperback and the, or if you're in the uk it, it, the, uh, it's, a, it's a trade it's a paperback original in the uk so
0: okay um and uh one of the things i always like to recommend to my listeners is that uh there's there's a couple ways you can always support a book like this you not only can buy it if you don't have the money you can request it at your library and you should always request books at the library if they don't already have it uh just as a, another way to support the writers and of course uh you know writing a review and spreading the word of mouth is 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 really important um uh i have a tendency for books i like to face them out when i'm at Barnes and nobles oh yeah <laughs> like um uh, and, uh, you know I sold at only good Indians the other day with standing in uh Barnes and Nobles because the somebody was looking at don't fear the Reaper and I just mentioned hey just so you know that's book two and they didn't have my hardest chainsaw for whatever reason I and I was even, able to sell the only good Indians to this person. person's
1: doing just fine but yeah it's good to have <laughs> sure you happy to have the sale
0: yeah but I but I'm saying like the, these conversations are out there. You can have them with people to spread the word about these books. They re, that really helps.
1: Yeah. I think more than anything, I think what's made this book for the moderate success it's had, I think it's been more than, I, I know it's been more than anything. It's been word of mouth because it hasn't been reviewed in any major publication. It's not on any of the, you know, best of year list. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it just really, you know, it's just been kind of like very underground, um, but it's doing okay. And I think there's a lot of people talking about it and recommending it. And that's, that's, that's the most important thing to me is that readers like it. And, um, and, uh, and yeah, to your point, tell your friend about it. Or if there's someone you think who would have been to it, like, yeah, buy him a copy.
0: And you should know that I do occasionally root for your lions because I think Jared Goff was done wrong by the Rams. I think they gave up on him too early and uh, I also don't have an NFL team anymore since the Chargers left and they're dead to me now. Get
1: on the bandwagon, man. Jump on. There's room, <laughs> lots of room.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, I, I, I root for, I like underdogs. So a lot of times, and no matter how many games you guys win this year, the Lions are always going to be underdogs.
1: We're probably, we're probably, we're probably another two seasons from being. You know, consistently great. I would say consistently great, a consistently upper tier team. I think this year we're like this is our first. Like last, people don't realize last year we started one and six. Before yeah. that, we were three and thirteen. Like it's, you know, the fact that we have a winning record is like everyone's like saying, "Oh, we're the you know we're going to go to Super Bowl." It's like no, we're not. Like I'll be happy to have win the win the division and go to the playoffs, but I think in a couple of years more. They're doing a good job building the team. The coach is amazing. And I think I I just love the idea. No one's laughing at Dan Campbell now. No one's laughing now. I love the idea of being consistently, consistently very good because for, for, you know, I've been a Lions fan since I was a kid. So I've been, I'm an older guy. So 40 years now I've been following this team and for 40 years, they've been nothing but heartbreak. So the fact that we're actually competing and competitive and winning games and having winning records and stuff like that, is exciting. Yeah. It's an exciting time. Like, it's funny. My kid, my son started enjoying he's old enough now where he's starting to enjoy watching football with me. And he's like, I don't know why you're always like saying how bad the lines are. They're pretty good.
0: <laughs> how like, they are. Yes.
1: This is the golden era. You're, yeah. you're, you're coming into.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, how can folks uh, find your work uh, compiled all in one spot? Probably. For, yeah. Uh, I'm on I Facebook. Write? I'm on Instagram.
1: I'm on Twitter. Uh, just search my name, and then I'm on um, my website is p.fricasti.com.
0: Well, Philip, I love talking writing with you. Uh, we uh, are very simpatico. With a lot of our thoughts about narrative and research, and uh, it's one of the reasons why I think I always I find your books very breezy and easy to read. I find uh, I I end up my copy of Boys, even though it's a signed hardback. I've got all kinds of pages dog-eared where I'm like, Ooh, that's good stuff. Um, uh, and, uh, Mark it up. Mark I appreciate up. that. Yeah. And I, uh, super, uh, uh, appreciate your attention to detail. It's one of the things that, uh, I like about your narrative. So folks, let, oh, one last thing I will say is that if you are anywhere near the Midwest or you're wanting to watch the this year's solar eclipse, the last solar eclipse in 2017, I went all the way to Carbondale, Illinois to watch it. It was the most amazing thing I ever saw in my life. And so my next uh, science fiction novel is one called People's Park, and it takes place in my hometown of Bloomington, Indiana. And we are one of the best places in the country to watch next year's solar eclipse. On April, Monday, April 8th. So, on April 7th of this year, uh, at Morgan Storm's Books in year. Bloomington, Indiana, I'm um, doing the book release party for People's Park. And then the next day, you can hang out and watch the solar eclipse. And we are currently working on trying to get a Dickhead's uh, Philip K. Dick live event to record for the podcast that night uh, there, since my other co-host lives in the Midwest uh professor david wilson so there might be two book events you could go to on the 7th in indiana the book release will be in the afternoon the sci-fi event will be in the evening one of the two of the greatest nerdy uh road trips you could do are in indianapolis by the way the ray bradbury center is in indianapolis they moved his whole office from los angeles to indianapolis you can go and see the books. They use pictures to put all of Ray Bradbury's books on the shelf, exactly how he had it. You can sit in the chair where he wrote the Martian Chronicles, at the desk where he wrote everything but Fahrenheit 451, which he famously wrote in the Los Angeles Library. His desk, his chair, all of it. It's all they recreated his office at the Ray Bradbury Center in Indianapolis. You want to go. The Kurt Vonnegut Museum is in Indianapolis. I'm giving you four nerdy things you can do outside of the solar eclipse in Indiana, and I suggest you do it. You don't have to do it with the solar eclipse, but if you want to go see the Ray Bradbury Center, Jason there, uh, who's the Ray Bradbury expert, is awesome. They also have, if you plan it well enough, they have a VHS of the original cut of Something Wicked This Way Comes that was never released, the original director's cut. And they, some, they have been known to let people who visit the setter go sit in a room and watch it. Uh, this is a rare thing. So I just want to put it out there that you can do that. So on that note, Philip, thank you for joining us. Sorry uh, you put up with my promotion. Uh, no, and I will see folks here again soon. I will have Philip back for his science fiction novel, I Am Positive. I will... Uh, I'm very much looking forward to it. And I'm probably and what's the Civil War novel between there? Uh it's called Serafina. Serafina. I'm looking yeah. forward to that one too.
1: Earthling publications, uh August of August September next year. Yeah.
0: Next year. I'm looking forward to that one too. Um but I, I gotta admit the sci fi one. Yeah, it'll that one'll be that fun to do.
1: It'll, be funny. it'll be fun to have a sci fi novel out there. I'm excited about it.
0: Yes. All right, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, uh, keep it here. The next episode of this podcast will be the Science Fiction Hall of Fame covering the second story from 1934, John W. Campbell's Twilight with Alec neville Lee, the biographer of John Campbell, and uh, C- Kate Hefner, who's a postgraduate uh, student running her dissertation on science fiction fandom. So there's a lot of good discussion to be had. We'll see you then. Thank you, and thanks for joining us.